Hey, Pregnish listeners, we surveyed almost 1,100 patients to learn why they left their fertility clinics and are launching an amazing new program based on the survey that will reach over 1,000 healthcare providers. Thanks to the support of industry sponsors, Cooper Surgical Fertility and Genomic Solutions, and EMD Serono. This innovative program with 25 top fertility advocates and specialists as speakers has just launched. If you're interested in learning more, taking the free course, or supporting the program, visit PregnantishVerified.com. Today's topic is Got No Sperm, why this man's mission is to break the taboo of male factor infertility. If you came across Greg Sedeo on Twitter, you may think his account is a joke. After all, his handle is Got No Sperm, and his name is listed as Balls Don't Work. But there's no joke here. Greg is one of the estimated 40 to 50% of men with an infertility diagnosis that's impacted his ability to start a family with his wife. I think that's a big issue just in society in general where it's always assumed that it's, it's the woman. And to me, that's not so much we're a victim and people are ignoring me, but I don't think it's fair to always put it on the woman because it's not always the woman. I think it's because just the stigma of infertility and just the stigma overall with men not being open about their emotions, that there are very few male celebrities out there that are actually talking about their infertility. This episode explores why we often frame infertility as a woman's issue, how Greg and his wife have navigated this diagnosis, and how to support more men facing this medical reality. Greg, thanks so much for being on the Pregnish podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm so glad you've used your voice also through social media to break this stigma because I think so few men have the courage to come forward. And let's be honest, with infertility, you know, even a lot of women have shame around their diagnosis, even though we know it's nobody's fault. So I just want to thank you right out of the gate for using your voice and and advocacy. Oh, it's my pleasure. I mean, whatever I can do um, just to help others just realize that they're not alone, that there are others out there going through similar experiences and, you know, what they're feeling is natural. Absolutely. So Outside of your medical diagnosis, who are you? Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? I'm a uh, a 40-year-old man. I live in New Jersey in the United States. Uh, I've been married to my wife at this point well over 13 years. I'm a distance runner. I kind of got back into it. I ran back when I was in high school. And kind of when fertility came along, it's something that I gravitated towards again to help get through it. And I'm just a regular middle-aged man at this point with a career and other interests into sports and things like that and hanging out with friends. So pretty average guy. Well, you know, I think it's so cool that you took up running partly because of your diagnosis, because we covered that actually on this podcast previously. We recently interviewed Kelly McClay, who's a marathon runner, who went through menopause at 24. And running was a way for Kelly to feel that she could control something in her body. So for you, when did you know you may have infertility? Can you take us back? My wife and I have been trying to have children for a significant amount of time. We both went to go get tested rather than it just being a woman because you just never know. And when I had my first sperm analysis, it came back where there was as a azospermia diagnosis where there's no sperm that was detected in the analysis. Went back, got a second test that confirmed 
nothing there. Had a, a full round of blood tests that were done that confirmed it was not something hormonal, but it was something genetic. And it was a shock at first. Just didn't know how to react. I mean, I, I always thought that there was a chance that it could be me just because prior to us going for our diagnosis, you know, we read both male and female. We, you know, either one of us could have issues. It was a shock that it was something that was just that there was nothing there. It wasn't that I had a low sperm count or that there were issues with it. It was that there was no sperm count. And it took me a while before it it hit me exactly what it was and that there was nothing that I could do about it. There was nothing else that was wrong with my health that kind of gave me a hint that there might be something wrong. So it was just all a shock and just didn't make any sense to me. I can't even imagine. I mean, I think, you know, especially being so young, how old were you at the time? I was 32 years old at the time. So being 32 years old, you're excited to build your family. You're you're just going to check on some levels with your wife, see what's happening. You're probably not thinking you're going to hear that news. Uh, how did you process being told that there was no sperm detected? Both how did you process it on your own and, and with uh, your wife? Well, the first thing I did was I contacted the fertility center that my wife and I had gone to and asked them if they had any counseling, any um, recommendations of counselors to reach out to. So I had reached out to a therapist group who specialized in infertility and adoption and spent a good, at that point, five, six months, you know, first first round going through processing it all, talking through it. And it was hard. When I first started therapy, it was when I first got my diagnosis and I was confirming the diagnosis through the blood test, going to a urologist and then going to the urologist and being told that my condition's so rare and that for the condition and what it is, there's nothing that they could do. I mean, they could go in and extract and see if that there's any sperm there. But from what I was told, there's never been a reported case of somebody with my exact diagnosis having, found, having been able to extract anything. That initial shock took five, six months to initially get through that part of it. Of course. And did it challenge your your definition of manhood? And the reason I'm asking that is because I think that's a fear that we've heard from men who are scared to come forward as you so boldly have to share your male factor infertility diagnosis. It's something that I really didn't experience because I've read stories that interacted with other men going through infertility where they experienced it, where they were feeling like less of a man. I didn't really experience that. It was more of not being able to start a family with my wife. I didn't realize how much I wanted it to become a parent until I found out that I wasn't going to be able to become a parent. So it wasn't so much the damage to my manhood as it was just damage to just my overall outlook on life. Yes. And that's such a common thing on the show and on the pregnancy platform we hear. I didn't know how much I wanted to become a parent until the opportunity was 
quickly taken away from me. And for so many of us, it came as a, a shock as it did for you. How did your wife deal with this diagnosis? Do you remember when you got the news, how you processed it as a couple? It was tough for us um, as a couple because we, just like with any couple, process things very differently. And there was a communication breakdown for a while. And it took us a while to be able to open up. And I was so wrapped up in myself and my own grief that it took me a long time to recognize that it's not just my loss, it's our loss. It's our loss together. And it really took me a long time to realize that my wife, even though maybe she wasn't speaking it as much as, as often as I was, but she was hurting as well too. So one of my big regrets early on was not reaching out to her as much as I probably should have. And that's also so common because, you know, there are so many different feelings that flow through us with any hard medical diagnosis we're given. And grief looks different for different people. And that's so often hard to remember. You know, we have to remember you're your own person, your wife's her own person. Together as a couple, there's there's a life in that as well in your partnership. It's obviously not a person, but it's certainly a unit uh, that needs attention. And it, it's so common to have relationship issues or a lack of communication around tough news. For men and women listening who are also struggling with male factor infertility, what advice do you have for them with, with regards to this? Make sure you're reaching out to your partner and you're discussing things as a couple and you're going through it together. Sure, there's things and going through the grief you have to go through on your own, but just recognizing that it's your loss uh, and that you are in this together. I mean, there, there's, there's a reason that, that people get married. It's not just to get married and have a child together. You're, you pick this one person out of anybody in the world um, to spend the rest of your life with. So you really have to reach out to your partner. And as difficult as it is, open up. And at the very least, maybe just communicate. Maybe tell your partner that, you're still processing things and that maybe you're not ready to open up right away, but there has to come a certain point where, where you do open up and just explain how you're feeling and that, you know, explaining to your partner what they can do to help you out because chances are they're going to want to help you out. That's very true. I think that's a great relationship lesson for anyone listening, whether or not they're struggling with an infertility diagnosis, because in a long-term partnership, we're not always on the same page when we face life challenges and we shouldn't project onto someone how they should feel. We need, we really need to check in and communicate and ask. Yeah. And I love what you said. Maybe I'm not ready to speak now, but let's acknowledge that this is hard. We'll get through it. And we'll get through it together because we chose each other in this life. I, I think that's such an important relationship lesson. So what happened when you shared it with others? Did you share this reality, this diagnosis with extended friends, family? What was that response like? How did you approach it? I am very, very blessed, very, very lucky that my friends and family were all very supportive. They were extremely, extremely supportive. Uh, my, my parents were 
great telling them up front. Um, I felt kind of bad. Um, particularly my mother was questioned at first whether it was something that she did that, that caused it. And it really wasn't anything that she did. It was just a fluke. And then my friends all reached out to me, all asked, you know, what, you know, if they could do anything. I, I had one friend who invited me and my wife to go out to go out on vacation with him and his wife. I couldn't have asked for a better support group. And I, I don't know if I would be here if it weren't for them. And I mean, this was at a time, as with a lot of people going through infertility, where your friends are, they're all having, you know, starting their own families. And there were a number of times when one friend got pregnant, you know, him and his wife got pregnant and he picked the phone and called me before he even told his own parents. Wow. So that meant a lot to me. Anytime someone has throughout this whole thing has, has reached out to me, it, 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 it stuck with me. And it almost makes me want to help them in any way that I can. Anytime something ever comes up in, in our life, I just don't want to ever forget that and be able to be able to support them as much as they were able to support me when I needed it. 100%. And you know, that's why I always say that infertility is as much a relationship issue as a, a medical issue. Definitely. Yeah, because we're taught, we've already spoken together about the relationship to yourself and your body, the relationship to your wife, the relationship to your friends and family. And then it extends even for a lot of people navigating infertility in the workplace and the general ignorant comments we hear, whether it's in the media or people asking, why don't you have kids yet? When it's out of so many of us, out of our control. And so when people would ask you, I'm sure through the years, people started having families. How did you and your wife dodge those questions? How did you answer? Were you blunt and honest? It, it, it varies. It depends upon the situation. There are certain times where either one of us will say, you know, no, we, we, we don't have children. And there are other times where I'll say, I'm not able to have children. It varies depending upon who's asking. And early on going through infertility, it was just depending upon how I was feeling in that moment. Of course, you don't always feel like talking about this, right? Because you're already processing all these complicated emotions on your own. It's not fun to think about going down that path and explaining everything to someone who you're not super close with, I'm sure. And I'm sure people also shared, you know, sometimes shared ignorant suggestions. Oh, well, if you can't have a baby, why don't you just fill in the blank. <laughs> it's something that some of our listeners are probably thinking themselves. So I'd love to address that, Greg. I, I think some listeners are wondering if you considered sperm donation or adoption and what was your process there? Because I know those are not easy steps just to be clear, but I would love to hear your perspective and your experience with those things. We looked into both of those options. We, we went through all of our options that were available to us in our different ways, read different books on it, connected with people on the internet from the standpoint of both connecting with parents, connecting with children who were conceived via sperm donation, 
kids who were adopted and just read stories of different people that, that went through it, both the positive and the negative. And I still kind of have, have a connection every now and then where I'll, I'll read different experiences and, and still stay involved and, and put my two cents in from the standpoint of, you know, someone who is part of a couple who didn't end up going down those roads and that everyone People can think that, oh, they decided that they didn't go down those roads. They must be, you know, happy. And it, it, it discounts that there are still challenges in life being childless. But we did go down those roads, looked at those different options. It took us, I mean, there was, it was probably a good two, two and a half, maybe three years before, after my initial diagnosis to where our road to parenthood ended. And it's, I would have to say the, after deciding that our, not deciding, but just getting to the point where our journey to parenthood ended and realizing that we wouldn't have children was probably harder than the initial diagnosis of finding out about my infertility. Yeah. I mean, I imagine it's because there was so much finality there. Whereas when you first heard the diagnosis, maybe the options seem more possible or within reach. And one thing we know about childless, we know the expression childless by choice for many isn't accurate because it doesn't feel like a choice when some choices or options aren't easy to access. So is that something that resonates with you or do you embrace the term childless by choice? I tend to believe it's more circumstance in a lot of cases. I mean, if you, if you, and everyone processes things differently, there are different people and different couples who feel that they are childless, that they made the choice to be childless for whatever reason. But in some cases, there are circumstances where people don't have children. It's not because they don't like children. It's not because they couldn't love a non-biological child. It just, there are certain circumstances where for everyone, it's not possible or for everyone, it just, it's not going to happen. And that's okay. It, it, it it's it's okay as difficult as it is for the couple it is okay you can still lead a fulfilling life it's a different life but you can still lead a fulfilling life can you talk to me about that because we definitely have listeners hanging on to your words as they go through heartache and and an infertility diagnosis in addition to not reaching out to my wife early on the other big regret I had was when our, when it became a finality that we weren't going to become parents, what I tried to do was find something to replace that. Tried to find something that would fill in that gap. I was trying to find that one, diff, that one thing, and I tried different things. I, I, I got involved in different activities, and it took me a while to learn that it's a loss. It it just, you know, if you lose a parent or a friend passes away, you're never going to replace that person. You're never going to replace that loss. But what you can do is just look for different things that make your life fulfilling. 
for me, it's, it's, it's been a, a lot of little things, you know, between my running and different activities, little moments, traveling. Uh, my wife and I, we have a dog that we absolutely adore. And we had a dog while we were going through infertility. So it, it was really, really hard. And a big, huge mistake I made was trying to find one thing. And you're just never going to replace that loss. It's it's it, it's a losing battle, and you kind of have to let go that you're not going to be able to find something that's going to replace that loss. Yeah, and I I think that's a really wonderful way to put it because I think that it could be an ex- exhausting exercise to try to replace a loss, and to find other things that bring joy doesn't mean that you don't still have moments of missing a gap in your life. I'm sure that you wish you could have fulfilled this dream you had if circumstances were different. Do you connect with this infertility community regularly? Obviously, it's a part of your Twitter handle. It's how we found each other. So you've made it known, which I think is incredible. Do people reach out to you? Have they connected to share with you? Yeah, I would have to say early on, I connected with a lot of people via social media, bloggers, via Twitter. But probably over the last few years, I haven't connected with as many new people. There are certain people where we've gone our different paths and, and I've lost touch with them. And then there are others that others that I, I maintain a relationship with on a regular basis that, you know, we're, we're friends on Facebook. I've actually met some people in, in person. And that was a really cool thing to actually meet people that you're talking with online and meeting them. So I have maintained relationships, probably not as many as I used to, and I'm probably not as involved in the community as I once was. And it just, I used to early on hold grudges against people who would go on to have children who lost touch with the infertility community where they kind of move on. But Years later, I've found myself in a similar place where I've kind of moved on from it. And it's not that I've forgotten my roots or, you know, forgotten what I've gone through. It's just I've moved moved forward in life. It's it's not where I thought about infertility every single day like I did, you know, the first few years. But there is a great community of people out there, you know, both men and women. There are very few men out there in social media and blogging about infertility. It's more women, but I've learned a lot from everyone that I've come in contact with over, you know, the last that actually at this point, it, it'll be, it'll be eight years since my initial diagnosis later this month. Wow. Probably feels like a lifetime ago. It does. Because there are so many chapters and so many nuanced, complicated emotions as people move on when they build families after infertility. And I just, I totally get that. And I think you've really touched on something because there are actually two huge misconceptions in this episode that are so apparent to me. One is the misconception that Everyone who has infertility has a resolution. They're resolved with a child eventually. And I see that you have hashtag team childless on your Twitter profile. And that is a way underrepresented, way left behind, way undertold story in the group of infertiles, you know, in the storytelling here. And then the other underrepresented issue, and we've talked about this a lot, is that infertility is always a woman's issue. I think the vast majority of people think that when it's almost 
half the man. Yeah. What I'm constantly trying to wrap my head around as a content creator, as a journalist, is why is the media and the content shared not reflecting the diversity and storytelling in this category? Infertility doesn't just affect white people. It doesn't just affect women. It doesn't just happen to people over 35. I mean, there are so many people left behind. So I would just love to hear your thoughts on that because it's something that bothers me, something, uh, you know, we are committed to breaking at Pregnant-ish. I think that's a big issue just in society in general where it's always assumed it's, it's the woman. And to me, that's not so much we're a victim and people are ignoring me, but I don't think it's fair to always put it on the woman because it's not always the woman. I think it's because just the stigma of infertility and just the stigma overall with men not being open about their emotions, that there are very few male celebrities out there that are actually talking about their infertility. I know that someone like Gordon Ramsay has brought it up, but it, it doesn't get as much attention as recently we we heard within the last few months about Lena Dunham coming out of her experience, it's still not getting as much attention in the media as when the men do come out. So I'm not sure how that stigma is going to break. Maybe it's just a generational thing where, you know, more and more men will come out and It'll be people, anytime a couple's going through infertility, the question won't be asked about, and it won't be assumed that it's always the woman, that it will always be, you know, it could be the man, it could be a combination of both, you could have both parts. And then also to the point that you brought up about it being a stigma where, it, oh, infertility is caused by people who just, you know, waited too long to have children. That That's not necessarily true. I mean, there are a number of people who I've interacted with that found out about their infertility when they were young. And, you know, whether or not they start to try to have children in their early 20s or their early 30s or even their late 30s, it it still would have been an issue. And the same thing on my end. I mean, if, if we would have tried when we first met, when we were in college, we wouldn't have been able to have children. So yeah, I think people need to just understand that are outside of the infertility community who don't have that experience, that they, they need to learn that it's not only a women's problem, that there are men that go through it. And it's not just people who just wait too long to have children that just it, it's not true. I mean, we have friends who had children, got, got married, had children in their late 30s with no issues at all. Oh, yeah. It definitely works the opposite way. You're totally right. Because I was diagnosed at 14 uh, around the time I started menstruating. And a, a doctor told me I'd probably have issues with fertility. He said I likely had endometriosis. And honestly, I didn't know what that meant. I didn't care. I didn't look into my fertility for many years after that, which makes me question why. But I do remember when my husband and I started dating more seriously and talking about our future, um, I told him, you know, it may take us a year or two to conceive because I remembered this early diagnosis. And of course, uh, it took us eight years to meet our baby and we didn't use my uterus. And there were all these factors that I could have used some help with earlier, especially since the whole issue started in my uterus with endometriosis when I was a teenager. So you're absolutely right that it actually works on both ends where many of us were diagnosed 
very young, much younger than 35. And it wouldn't have mattered if we tried to get pregnant at 20. And then there are those who we always hear just kind of get pregnant easily or accidentally for the first time at 40 plus. And, you know, I'll never forget a well-meaning, it's not all the time well-meaning, but sometimes it is. Let's give some people credit. But, you know, people may mean well and still say ignorant things. And I remember someone years into struggling myself to build a family, he said to me, well, I knew my wife would get pregnant with no problem because she's so healthy and she's such a positive thinker. (laughs) And it took every, you know, ounce of me not to lunge across the table and shake him and say, what are you talking about? I'm healthy. I'm a positive thinker. Don't put that on the infertility community that we're not doing enough. And, you know, when people say these things, and we always hear it, just do this, just try that. Um, If you have no sperm and it's a medical diagnosis or you have blocked tubes and you're a woman, no amount of positive thinking in the world will reverse that. And it's also really imperative with this podcast that we elevate infertility as a medical diagnosis because nobody would say to someone with, with diabetes or cancer, just think positively, it'll go away. And it's something that we really have to change. I am so sorry. Because <laughs> I, I mean, you're hearing that and you're, you're questioning yourself that, am I doing something wrong? Am I going about it the wrong way? Maybe, maybe I, I need to be more healthy. Or, you know, maybe I do need to think more positive thoughts. And it has nothing to do with that. And it just... Like you said, there are well-meaning people out there that are trying to help that just, that lack, empathy is a big part of it, just in general in society, people lacking empathy. Everyone's looking to help another person, help solve their problems. Well, in some cases, you're not going to be able to solve their problems, but the best thing that you could do is just support them and just listen and just put yourself in their shoes. But I, I am so sorry, and I can only imagine you know, in addition to that, other comments that you experienced. Well, you know, now I can kind of laugh at some of them because they're so ridiculous when you know the science, you know, when you know it's about basic biology, it becomes even more ridiculous when someone tells you take a trip and you'll get pregnant or... Yeah, relax. (laughs) I got so many sex tips from random people while I had struggled to get pregnant and stay pregnant, you know, (laughs) hold your legs up high in the air during sex, you'll get pregnant. And I don't want to have sex tips from Aunt Aunt Susie at the dinner table. That's terrible. And just to be clear, I don't have an aunt, aunt named Susie. But, you know, these are tales we've all had. And it's the pain point. Advice is a true pain point in the infertility community. I think advice is often the enemy of supporting someone through grief. Now, it's different if advice is asked for. So if someone says to you, Greg, I have male factor infertility, like I asked you today, what advice do you have? That's very different. But for other people who aren't medical professionals who offer advice for your medical diagnosis, let me give you a bunch of advice. It's it's not helpful. Yeah. So one thing that's also come up as we've talked about this is that couples aren't always on the same page about sharing this or any medical diagnosis. And Some people are just more extroverted. I'm definitely raising my hand as one of them. And and some people are just more private and it's painful. And I totally respect that. So how is your wife aligned with you sharing this so, so publicly? 
I'm more the extrovert where I'm out, you know, I'm pretty open about it. Whereas my wife is more private and getting back to, it took me a while to recognize that it's our loss. And there are certain things that I shouldn't share, especially when you're talking about social media and just going back and forth with people. It caused a lot of tension at times. And that's completely on me because I, I needed to recognize that it's our loss and that there are things out there that I maybe put out there that maybe my wife doesn't want out there. I mean, she's a, a different personality. I mean, it's her loss too. And we both went through it differently. She told some friends at first and, and, and told some family members at first, but she wasn't nearly as open as I was about it. Yeah. And, you know, I totally respect that because my husband is similar in that he's not in the closet about it. He doesn't feel ashamed of it, but he also doesn't need to broadcast it. And I think when you're not only extroverted, but a fertility advocate like we are, or also have the goal of not just sharing your story because it's a good story, but you also have the goal of sharing your story in support of advocacy and awareness and helping people. It's hard not to speak. It's very powerful and sometimes very helpful to use your voice in this way. So I I really appreciate that your partner and I have allowed us to share even when they don't necessarily want to be on the mic themselves. Yeah. Now it's eight years later. If you could go back in time to Greg at 32 years old, just hearing this diagnosis, what would you tell him? Take one day at a time. It's going to take a very, very long time. There are going to be some really, really dark days ahead. And you just have to grin and bear it. Reach out to your wife. Talk to her as, as difficult as it, as it is and opening up about it. And just look at the life that you have in the moment. Don't look too far ahead. And also... Just sit and process it. You don't have to rush through it. You can take things slowly. You have your whole life ahead of you. You have your whole life that's in front of you right now. You don't want to miss what you have in front of you because <laughs> you get older and older and then you wish you'll have regrets about different things that you wish you would have done at an earlier age. So my suggestion would be to take things one day at a time. Yes, it's a good lesson for any of us. I think that's actually such an inspiring way to close this interview because I know some people are really hanging on to these words, these wise words of yours. And of course we have people listening who've never had an infertility diagnosis and enjoy this, this storytelling, but there are definitely people listening who also really wanna normalize this and to know that they're not alone. And I just wanna thank you so much for sharing your voice and your experience. I think this is really, really great. Uh, and, and I thank you for, for putting this together. And, and I, hope, I hope this was beneficial to you know somebody out there. I know it will be. So thank you, Greg, so much for being here. And thank you listeners for listening to another episode of the Pregnish Podcast, where we tell the story of how many modern families are built and how people navigate the complexities of an 
you know, an infertility diagnosis they didn't expect to receive. This show would not be possible without your support. So thank you for listening. Please rate us wherever you listen to podcasts. Tell your friends to listen. We want to keep telling these incredible stories. We want to break the taboo of infertility and spread more awareness and meet more incredible guests. Until next time.